Hello, and welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. I work in public relations, and the most famous of all PR jobs is that of White House Press Secretary. The White House Press Secretary shapes how the President of the United States talks to the public, controls what information does and doesn't get out, and forms the reputation of the administration as a whole. How he or she handles crises and scandals can define a presidency forever. And today, we have the privilege of talking to a former White House press secretary, Mike McCurry, who served under President Bill Clinton from 1995 to 1998. It was hard work. I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I did when I was in the White House. Though some people aren't too impressed. My daughter, who works for Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show, she always kind of rolls her eyes and says, oh, Dad, yeah, you were, you were famous in the 1990s, but that was the last century. <laughs> but even in this century, if you've ever tuned in for a White House press briefing, watched a presidential or vice presidential debate, or thought about the intersection of religion and politics, you've seen this man's influence. I was then uh, appointed to the Commission on Presidential Debates. You know, the more recent presidential cycles, I've not been in the campaign. I've been more involved in helping set up in uh, the, the general election debates that we have every year, which I think are very, very important. But uh, once I decided I was going to retire out of the political business, I took a little detour in my career and now teach at a Methodist seminary here in Washington, D.C., which is a whole different walk of life. Today, we're talking to Mike McCurry. He'll tell us about his journey to the White House and what it was like to serve as press secretary under the 42nd President of the United States. We'll get a behind-the-scenes look at two big events that took place during his time there the 1995 federal building bombing in Oklahoma City, and the 1998 Monica Lewinsky scandal. He'll even give us some pointers on how we can be better consumers of the news today. So, here's Mike McCurry. Morning, Mike. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Well, it's great to be with you and a fun subject to talk about. <laughs> We're looking forward <laughs> to it. More or less. <laughs> Um, so, Mike, a lot of folks know you as the press secretary in the President Bill Clinton administration, but I'd love to, to take a step back and talk about how you got there. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about where it began? How did you get your start in politics and communication? When I was in, at Princeton and graduating in 1976, my intent was to be, become a newspaper reporter. I had been an on-campus journalist and had uh, covered news for the local Trenton, New Jersey Times, which is a local newspaper there. I was the campus correspondent, and my intent was to go to work for them. Uh, unfortunately, the Washington Post owned the paper at that time, and right before I graduated, the Washington Post decided to sell the newspaper. And I, I always tell that story and say it was not the not the last time I would ever get screwed by the Washington Post. <laughs> but anyhow, it was a presidential primary year. And my governor, I was from California, my governor, Jerry Brown, was running for president. 
And I thought he was, you know, kind of a remarkably interesting person. So I volunteered in his campaign in New Jersey. And lo and behold, we won the New Jersey primary in 1976, which many people don't remember. We beat Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter happened to win Ohio that day, and that put him over the top, and he became the nominee for president. So I, you know, basically became kind of what we call a journeyman PR guy in presidential politics and worked in pretty much every presidential campaign after. How did you meet Bill Clinton? When was the first time? I had met uh, then Governor Clinton when he was uh, head of the National Governors Association and had, you know, I'd had some interaction with him. But interestingly, I worked against him in the 1992 primary because I worked for Senator Bob Kerry, uh -huh. which, by the way, Bill Clinton never forgot. <laughs> Whenever he was mad at me about something, he said, you and your friend Bob Kerry should go. <laughs> But, uh, but anyhow, I, I, I developed enough chops that when, you know, we they started formulating the administration in 1992, 1993, uh, after Bill Clinton was inaugurated, <clears throat> my, my friend George Stephanopoulos put me in front of Warren Christopher, who was to be the new incoming Secretary of State, and uh, he Warren Christopher and I hit it off very, very well. And I was, you know, invited in 1993 to become the spokesman for the U.S. State Department. Mm -hmm. And so that was really the, the beginning of, you know, how I, uh, the, the work I did there for two years got noticed, got noticed, by the way, by Hillary Clinton. Uh, Hillary claims to me that she's the one that sort of said to Bill Clinton, you ought to bring this guy from the State Department over to the White House. And so in 1995, I moved over to the White House as White House Press Secretary. Now, most of us have seen photos or videos of the White House Press Secretary at a podium in a room with a bunch of reporters. The name of that room, by the way, is the James S. Brady Press Briefing Room. Like the Brady Bill, which strengthened gun control in 1994, the room was named after President Ronald Reagan's press secretary, who was shot and disabled when John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate President Reagan in 1981. But what happens away from that podium in that room? I'll hand it over to Mike to take us behind the scenes. I mean, a typical day in the life of the press secretary when I was there was that you would spend, you know, we'd have an early morning gathering with the White House press corps called the gaggle. You think of a gaggle of geese running around squawking. <laughs> <laughs> which is the way I kind of thought of it. But anyhow, the gaggle was a moment in the office that I had at the West Wing, which is one of the great offices in all of the West Wing. And uh, the reporters would come in and we would sort of, you know, batter around what was going to be the topics of interest. I would try to put out saying, here's what the president's doing today. Here's their message. Here are the things that we think are important. And then I would get the blowback from the press corps saying, no, here's what we want to talk about today. And here are the questions. So we would, the, the, the good part about that was that I knew what the questions were that the press corps really wanted answers for that day. And then we went to work, uh, you know, very uh, assiduously, I would say. Mm -hmm. And how would you go about getting those answers? I mean, my normal job on any day was to do exactly that, to go and pester cabinet officials, and, you know, dig out information and, and get every last memo. 
you mentioned the cabinet. Tell us about those meetings. Like, what was your approach? I would sit on the outside ring around uh, the cabinet table and not participate in any of the policy-making decisions uh, or participate in the debates because I never wanted anyone in various roles in the federal government to feel like I had a particular point of view. I wanted everyone to feel like they could come to me and say, here's what we think is important on this issue. Here's the position that we're taking. Cause I wanted, I wanted to be an even handed broker. I think that ended up serving me well. There were only, the only time I ever got at call now, at one point, President Clinton, after I'd gone to the White House and we were dealing with the conflict in the Balkans and what to do about uh, the Kosovar Bosnians. And, you know, we, we were actually getting ready to go to war, frankly. And at one point, you know, President Clinton, I was sitting in the back row as usual, and he said, well, Mike McCurry, you, you've talked, you've had to talk more about this issue than anyone in our government, because I, it was a daily subject when I had been at the State Department and I had to do briefings on it. What do you think? And I, I remember I, I mumbled something totally incoherent because I was not prepared to provide an answer. But I, I remember afterwards I went with Leon Panetta and I, we were in the Oval Office. I said, Mr. President, don't, don't ask me to take positions on things because then people won't share their positions with me. And I need to know what everyone thinks and what their argument is because then I can understand better how you make a decision. He said, well, that's pretty smart. That, that's, no, that's not a bad, that's not a bad way to look at it. So I remember I got an endorsement for my, uh, for the role that I played at that point. After getting the questions from the morning's gaggle and the answers from cabinet officials and every last memo he could find, Mike had one more person to check in with before facing the reporters in the press briefing room. You know, I'd go see the president and I'd go through the briefing book with him and say, okay, here's what, here's one of the subjects that we're going to be dealing with today. And here's what the guidance, it's called the guidance. Here's what the guidance is on what we should be saying. And sometimes President Clinton would look at it and say, well, that, you know, you ain't going to get away with that. <laughs> that's like, that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> so, so I said, well, that's your policy. Do you <laughs> And so he would pick up the phone and call a cabinet official or call someone and say, look, you know, Mike's got to go do this briefing today and we need a better answer on this question. So one of the utilities of this press briefing process is that I think it actually made government function more efficient because you'd get to answers and policy decisions quicker than you would be if you weren't facing the immediate uh, question that was going to be on the table that the press would be to hold us accountable for what we were doing. Right. And Mike, tell us about the briefing and what would happen afterward. Uh, I would then conduct the briefing usually around one o'clock in the afternoon. I'd go back to my uh, office, throw my briefing book against the wall and said, boy, I didn't, I blew that question. <laughs> and then I'd take a nap, literally, because I'd been up and since, you know, five in the morning. So I'd take a short nap and then I would kind of recover and we'd spend the rest of the day, you know, answering follow-up questions and dealing with uh, legitimate questions that the press was posing. Uh, what was your relationship with the press corps like? Well, I had, you know, I, I certainly had my share of spats with them, but I think we had some relationship of mutual trust that they, they at the end of the day, they said, look, 
you know, we've got hard questions to ask. <clears throat> You've got some obligation to tell us. The people have some right to know. And uh, so if we proceed on the basis of that, we can make what is an adversarial relationship a more amicable relationship. And that kind of relationship is really different from, you know, what folks, what we see on TV and political dramas, right? We'll see a lot of reporters uh, trying to corner the press secretary, um, ambushing them with, with questions they didn't see coming or, or even finding out, finding out about breaking news from, from some unnamed source before the press secretary. Uh, yeah. So that never happened, that kind of thing. Well, you know, for me, I mean, remember, I did not have to deal with social media because we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Instagram, we didn't have any of the things that I think make this a much more complicated job now. I've, I've talked to some of my successors like Dana Perino, who I, I really adore uh, from the Bush administration, Robert Gibbs, who worked for Obama, uh, Nicole Wallace, who was not press secretary, but was a communications advisor for President Bush. And we all pretty much agree that the job is so much different now. Mm. and has so many different requirements. And that may be an explanation about why the Trump administration just basically gave up on the job. I mean, really, we don't really have a White House press secretary anymore. I think we have someone with that title, but they don't do the job that I've just defined the way it was done, you know, in the last uh, decade or so. And that's just because of the different way in which they channel information to the public. They are much more targeting their information to a base of very loyal supporters and keeping them engaged, uh, maybe sometimes enraged. <laughs> but uh, it's what they, <clears throat> it is the way in which they communicate and it's profoundly different. Now, I think a good question is, will that change under President Joe Biden? Uh, and that, you know, we don't know the answer to that yet. Mm -hmm. Now, as much as the job has changed since Mike was there, it changed because of him, too. If you've ever seen a televised White House briefing, you have him to thank. Uh, so you were the first press secretary who uh, allowed for live broadcasting, right, of the White House press briefings? Yes, I, I plead guilty. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me tell that story because it's a little bit interesting. Um, at the time that I went to the White House, there was no televised briefing. The two reporters who made such a big difference to me were Mark Noller from CBS Radio and Peter Mayer, who then at that point worked for Westinghouse Radio. And they came to me one day and they said, look, we are at a significant disadvantage because we can't take the sound from your briefings and use them in our reports. So we were handicapped against our print uh, competitors who can actually report anything that you say, you know, on the wires and, you know, it, it, almost instantaneously. So we need access to that. And I thought that was a reasonable argument. And so I uh, told my staff one day, I think early on in my time at the White House, I said, well, just let's, uh, they used to have kind of, they would, they would leave the cameras on for like 30 seconds at the beginning. So you would just get a picture that they could then use for their reports later in the day. I said, we'll just leave the lights on a little bit later today and a little bit later tomorrow. And then by the end of the week, the whole thing was on television or you know, available for broadcast. 
And uh, I remember Mark Miller came to me and said, Mike, do you realize that the entire briefing yesterday was uh, on the record and, and available for broadcast? And I said, yeah, and if you make a big deal about it, it'll never happen again. Because it was, it was just, I, I just kind of unilaterally made the decision. I didn't ask for permission. I told Leon Panetta, who was then the chief of staff, I said, you know, we're, we're kind of going to where we're going to put the briefing out every day and make it available for broadcast. And he said, okay, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> I don't think paid much attention to it. Right. Right. Uh, I'm curious, Mike, looking back now, what do you make of it? Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing, somewhere in between? You know, what was being reported every day, they were, you know, it was just, they were ingredients. It's a briefing. It was the ingredients of news. They weren't supposed to be newsworthy events in and of themselves. And that, that was the important thing. That it was, this was for the benefit of the reporters covering the White House. It was just additional content. The idea was they could take whatever I had to say or whatever the White House was saying, and then they could test it against other sources and go interview other people and put together, you know, a more complete report that would be available to uh, their viewers and their listeners. But of course, then what happened was then we had the Monica Lewinsky episode in 1998, and suddenly I became much more interesting than afternoon soap operas, and so everything went live instantaneously. And what I what I regret is that I didn't put any kind of curbs on that. Like at the State Department, everything was it was we call it an embargo. It was embargoed until the end of the briefing, and you know that meant you couldn't go live with it. And I, I never put that, I, I should have put that restriction in at the White House. So my bad on that one. You just heard Mike mention the Lewinsky scandal. So we're about to shift our focus to two major events that took place during his tenure as press secretary. So April 19th, 1995, right? Uh, a bomb explodes outside of a federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. It's you know still to date uh, the deadliest domestic terrorist attack in American history. Um, I, I feel like folks who um, remember that time, it's one of those things where they remember where they were when they heard the news. Do you remember where you were? I was in the White House, and I, re I remember <clears throat> just the scramble for information, because one of the things that we were trying to determine very quickly is what, what happened, uh, what's the level of casualty, what, you know, how devastating was this? So the first thing everybody was scrambling to do was just to gather factual information. The second thing I remember is how quickly the media jumped to conclusions about what we were doing. So there was a report uh, that actually Wolf Blitzer had on CNN. He was the White House report, reporter there. And he reported that the White House was uh, ordering that U.S., uh, you know, that the ports of entry and exit were shut down because we were <clears throat> suspecting that there was Arab terrorism involved, and that we were beginning a law enforcement effort to try to determine what, you know, maybe Arab-linked, uh, Al-Qaeda-linked uh, terrorist organization had plot, 
plotted this. And I remember I, I, I called Janet Reno, who was then the attorney general, and I said, Janet, you know, they got all this stuff and they're reporting sources in the U.S. government saying that we're doing it. And she said, Mike, it's not true. <laughs> it's like we, we have not put out any uh, order like that. And frankly, we don't know what the suspect profile is that we're looking at. And so, you know, it's not accurate. And I, I remember just going in front of the press corps and saying, you've got to slow down because the facts will have to come out as they come out. And we just don't have them all right now. There's not some closet at the White House that is the truth closet and it all comes tumbling out all at once. It's just, you know, we are painstakingly put putting forward a lot of this information and trying to, you know, de-accelerate the rapid transition of information that may or may, may not be reliable. Uh, that was what I recall being one of the, the hardest things to do. Four days later, on April 23rd, President Clinton addressed the nation from Oklahoma City. Today our nation joins with you in grief. We mourn with you. We share your hope against hope that some may still survive. We thank all those who have worked so heroically to save lives and to solve this crime. Those here in Oklahoma and those who are all across this great land and many who left their own lives to come here to work hand in hand with you. We pledge to do all we can to help you heal the injured, to rebuild this city, and to bring to justice those who did this evil. Clinton knew that he had done something important for his presidency. He had been struggling up to that point, you know, and, and that speech, among other things, kind of put him back on that trajectory to, you know, uh, win re-election in 1996 and, you know, all the things that followed out of that. But I think he also, you know, knew that it was sort of an important moment for the country. Absolutely. Now, Mike, I've actually read that you didn't travel with President Clinton on his trip to Oklahoma City. Uh, because my third child was being born at that, on that very same day. And I remember, uh, great story, the president had, I watched the president, my, my wife is literally in labor, and I'm watching the president give this, you know, really, really important speech in Oklahoma City, watching it on TV in the delivery room. And so after our uh, third child, Chris, was born, uh, on the way back from Oklahoma City, President Clinton calls us at, at the hospital. And, he, you know, I talked, you know, I picked up the phone and the, the, the nurses came running and saying, you have a call from the President of the United States on Air Force One. And they were like, they were scrambling around. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So I, I talked to the president. I said, boy, I think that was a great speech, but I was otherwise occupied. And he said, well, it was, I think we had a pretty good day down here. And he goes, let me talk to Deborah." And said, so my wife, who had just <laughs> delivered, I said, the president wants to talk to you. And she literally, you know, she got up out of bed and stood up. I said, what are you doing? She goes, I'm talking to the president of the United States. <laughs> so I should be standing. So I said, no, you should be. You're not supposed to be standing right now. So it was, it's, it's like one of our great family stories about how she 
you know, she stood up in her in her uh, gown and <laughs> talked to the president, you know, in full attention. Besides giving the McCurries a great family story, there's another important lesson for us all to learn here. As we all know, it turned out that this was actually a domestic terrorist, Timothy McVeigh, who had committed the crime. And uh, I think that, that that's important to all of us to remember that sometimes the facts tend to come out slower than we want and that we've got to not rush to judgments and not instantaneously uh, decide things until we know really what the true facts are. Mm-hmm. We are living through exactly that kind of thing mm-hmm. as we deal with some of the issues we deal with today. Fast forward to 1998. It's January, and the Monica Lewinsky investigation is starting to heat up. The claims that President Clinton had an extramarital sexual relationship in the White House while Lewinsky was an intern there are getting louder. Here's Mike on what was going on behind the scenes. If you recall, I mean, the, the, when the story first broke, and of course, m- most of us in the White House thought this was totally improbable. Like, there's no way the president could be messing around because we have Secret Service guards that are there all the time. So there's, even if he wanted to, there was no way it could happen. So we started from the wrong premise, which was disbelieving any of the initial reports that we had. And, and then if you recall the president, when the story first broke, he went out and did a couple of interviews, I think with Mara Eliasson from NPR and a couple of other people. And he sounded sort of wishy-washy in his denials. I mean, their whole thing, well, there is no sex. I don't want to go into all of the the nuance of that, but that became kind of a trope that everybody uh, soon understood. And I remember we went in and said, look, you know, you're denying this story. You have to be forceful in your denial because, you know, this this is a serious matter. So then we got the, I did not have sex with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. Everybody of any age uh, remembers that clip. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. You know, from at that point on, I got asked every day at the briefing for me to kind of, quote unquote, parse the sentence. Like, what did he really mean when he said that? And I made a conscious decision not to try to interpret the president's words and just stick to what he had said and what the lawyers had given me as a script to use. And thank God that I took that attitude because, of course, eight months later, the president had to come forward and sort of say, well, as as a matter of fact, I did have an inappropriate relationship. He had to kind of fess up at the end of the day. But luckily, I feel like during that time, we had not dug the hole deeper. If you look at the, our subject generally is the performance of the White House press secretary. The White House press secretary is like, if you think of the famous example of Ron Ziegler during the Nixon years, they get in trouble when they dig the hole deeper. Mm. Uh, 
uh, and when they go into places where they're speculating or you know saying things that may or may not be true and i I am thankful for the fact that I never dug the hole deeper i I probably frustrated a lot of people because I didn't answer the questions all the time i mean I, one day I remember. Uh, trying to get off on a light note, I saying, look, you're making me double park in the no comment zone now. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, looking back at the Monica Lewinsky scandal, what do you feel like are the lessons to learn for anyone today who's dealing with a crisis? I mean, there are two, two things about crisis communications. One is that you've got to get the story out fast. You've got to get your facts together. Uh, you need to kind of not let anything linger that is unanswered. I mean, that's rule number one. But the second thing is that you've got to be absolutely confident that you've got factual information that is reliable. And those two play against each other sometimes because the faster you go, the more likely it is that you're going to get it wrong. Uh, the longer you wait to try to get the story right, the more it, the story lingers that could be troublesome to the organization or to the principal or if it's a president or an organization or a corporation, uh, you're going to, you know, be in this difficult gray area. Uh, so my, my, my most important piece of advice is that people who run organizations and who are in senior positions need to think of the communications function as being one of the most central important things that they have to address. And they should always have the people who are responsible for speaking on behalf of the organization in the room, you know, as, as the musical Hamilton would say, in the room where it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, they got to be in the room where it happens so that they can actually report reliably and know what they can and cannot say. As we wrapped up our conversation, Mike and I talked about the polarization and partisanship that seemed to characterize so much of our political landscape today. It's actually Britt Hume, the ABC correspondent at the White House for, and covering the White House. And he came to me one day and he said, you're one of the most political people we've ever had behind the podium. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you, you really, you know, put some sharp elbows out there from time to time. Because I would, you know, I had come from a political environment. And so I was not, you know, shy about taking a political shot now and then. But it, it made me think about the role and how political you should actually be from that podium. And so I toned it down a lot after that. I mean, I've always, I've always told Britt, that you, you made me take off my political hat and make me think a little bit more about you know, what the real point of the job is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting given <laughs> Brit and Fox News and all the yeah. I was going to say, I feel like, I feel like, uh, you know, since then it's, it's maybe trended in the wrong direction, right? Yeah. More partisan yeah. nowadays. Um, so what's your, what's your view on that? I mean, we're in a, you know, desperately polarized nation and we've got, one half of the country believing one thing and the other half believing the other thing. And, you know, the, the, when I worked for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan from New York, one of the great, maybe one of the last true public intellectuals in the United States Senate, he used to always say, oh, the quintessential question is, will the center hold? 
The point was, is there a center in American politics in which we can find common ground? And whether we're liberal progressive left or conservative evangelical right or wherever we are on the spectrum, we still at some point come together when we need to compromise and find common ground. And I think that's a, that's a, we're in some peril about that now because there doesn't seem to be a strong center that holds. Now I, I believe that more Americans put themselves in the center of the spectrum than do the elected people that they put in office. And so if we can reconstitute some kind of conversation around that center where people sort of say, look, you give a little, I give a little, we come together, we find some compromise. You know, some issues you can't compromise on because the, the moral values or the ethical questions are too strong to allow compromise. But there are other things where we can set aside differences and we can come together and we can do business. And, Frankly, right now, our Congress is broken and dysfunctional because we're, we're not finding that center. Mm-hmm. And outside of Washington, D.C., what uh, what can American citizens do, everyday people, uh, to move move the needle toward better bipartisanship? Uh, you know, my strongest suggestion would be get out of the media silo that you're in that only confirms your own bias. This issue of confirmation bias is important because we see so many people just searching out and looking for information that confirms what they already think. So the challenge would be to go try to find something that might be contrary to your point of view. Um, I get put to this test by my own wife because she says, can you please turn off MSNBC because we're going to watch Fox right now because we really need to see what they're saying on Fox. So we changed the channel and I listened to Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and other people that makes my head explode. (laughs) But, but, you know, to hear at least what the other argument is from the other side and to listen to it and to carefully regard it. The, The other suggestion I would be is when you're in these conversations with someone that you disagree with, repeat genuinely what they are saying. So if you say, here's what I hear you say, and you repeat their argument and, and not in a, you know, not to try to undercut it, but to just sort of say, I, I heard you and I listen and here's what I think you say. And here are the reasons why I disagree with that. That begins a different type of discourse that I think is more civil. And I think we need more of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It was a a pleasure, uh, and I think we all learned a lot from you. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Heard About with former White House Press Secretary Mike McCurry. If you enjoyed that conversation, tune in every other week for new episodes. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, and please spread the word about our podcast as we continue exploring the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. We're just getting started, and we're depending on folks like you to get others to, well, hear about, heard about. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.